When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, Jason Gotts here. Let's cast our minds back together to June 2015, a time before Donald Trump as president seemed even a remote possibility. We had just launched Think Again, and our second episode, and not much more than my second interview ever, I was talking with the musician and spoken word artist Henry Rollins, who I had admired since high school. This was over the phone, New York to L.A. on a Friday or Saturday night, and it was epic. Henry is a man of many thoughts and words, and noob interviewer that I was, I could barely get a word in edgewise, which was just fine because he had plenty to say. So lengthy was this episode, in fact, that we originally split it into two, releasing them at different times. Today, for your listening pleasure, with our old theme song intact, along with our old way of having the producers come in and introduce the surprise clips that they picked for us to discuss, I give you Henry Rollins' Redux, two classic episodes of Think Again, reunited at last. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for the world's most interesting thinkers and doers to share mind-blowing ideas on video. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. On the Think Again podcast, we surprise our guests and me, your host, with unexpected clips from these vast and mysterious archives, and then we talk about them. I'm here today with Henry Rollins, a guy who it looks to me like is pretty much doing exactly what he wants to do with his life. He's been lead singer of the band's Black Flag and Henry Rollins Band, toured the world as a spoken word artist, acted in Sons of Anarchy, published a few books of words and photography. A lot of people probably want to be you, Henry. Is that a bad idea? Uh, yeah. I think it would be better if they were themselves. There's a lot of my life that is like yours and anyone else's, you know, incredibly unglamorous, unbelievably boring, and something that one, like, must suffer through. But I, I do, you know, I have some, some good days, definitely. You know, I saw you once perform many years ago. Uh, I was a student at NYU. It might have been 1992, maybe at Limelight. 92, we did play Limelight. And the only thing I remember from, I mean, I remember a general wash of awesomeness. I think it was the first time I had ever seen spoken word in any form anywhere. But the only other thing I remember is something you were saying at the time about dating women your own age. I just remember you kind of extolling the virtues of grown-up women as being, you know, a worthy intellectual companion. And, and combatant. Uh, I mean, you can... And combatant, yes. Yeah, you can be with someone... Who's not going to put up with, you know, whatever 
you're thrown across who, who just goes, no, 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 you're better than that, or I know you too well, don't even think that you're getting by with that. And have someone you respect call you on and go, wow, thanks. Thanks for caring enough to call me out. I live in Los Angeles, Hollywood specifically. I see stuff like that where you see some old guy like me with like a 25-year-old girlfriend. I'm 54. Right. You know, yes, my girlfriend, you know, she, she lives with me. You're like, okay, uh, wow. Uh, I just wonder, you know, what do you all talk about? What's relevant in your lives together? That's, that's the part I'd never be able to understand. I mean, it worked in Harold and Maude, but that's probably an exception. Well, I think, you know, I think Harold uh, was really in need of, I, I think Harold needed some work. <laughs> Most definitely. Okay, so that was all preamble. Here's how this podcast works. To reiterate, our producers pick surprise interview clips from Big Think's archives. Our producer, Aaron, picked the first clip. What devilry have you chosen to inflict upon us today, Aaron? Okay, so I picked a clip featuring Dan Savage, and he is making the case that monogamy is ridiculous. So I was hoping this might ruffle some feathers. Right, and I have the email. I have it here in front of me. Should I open it? Yes, let us open it now okay. and see what's in store for us. Does society need to rethink yeah, its absolutely. views? We need to rethink love and commitment. You know, 60 years ago uh, was when we decided that men had to be monogamous too. Men were not monogamous for all of recorded human history. Men had concubines and whores. And 60 years ago, straight relationships began to become more egalitarian and it was less of a property transaction. A marriage had been a property transaction for most of recorded human history. And it became a union of two equals. And at that moment, Instead of deciding to, to allow women to have the same sort of freedom and leeway that men did, we decided to let men have the same limitations, uh, impose the same limitations that women had. And we put monogamous uh, sexual commitment at the heart of all relationships, all long-term commitments, all marriages. And we have watched, uh, we should now be able to recognize the consequences of that, which are a lot of short-term relationships, a lot of divorce, uh, because monogamy is uh, ridiculous, and people aren't any good at it. We're not wired for it. We didn't evolve to be. It's not natural. Um, and it places a tremendous strain on our marriages uh, and our long-term commitments to expect them to be effortlessly monogamous. Because what we've said is, if you're in love, you, shouldn't, you won't want to have sex with anybody else. And what we need to tell people is that if you're in love, you can make a monogamous commitment, and you will refrain from having sex with other people. But you will still desperately want to fuck the shit out of other people. But people understand love means I don't want to fuck other people because of these misconceptions pumped into people's heads about romance, love, and what it means. And so they meet somebody else that they're attracted to and they're attracted to this other person. They think, well, I must not be in love with my partner anymore, otherwise I wouldn't be attracted to this person. Or they feel threatened when their partners are attracted to other people as if you know, it makes them feel insecure. And we just need to get past that. And we talk about monogamy the way we talk about virginity that you know, you're monogamous until you fuck somebody else, and then you're not, you ruined it. You popped your monogamy hymen and destroyed your monogamous relationship. We need to talk about monogamy the way we talk about sobriety, which you can be monogamous and fall off the wagon and then sober back up. You can monogamous back up and get back on the wagon. And the truth of the matter is that if you're with somebody for 40, 50 years and they only cheated on you a few times, they were good at being monogamous. Not bad at being monogamous, they were good at it. So I do think there needs to be some leeway and a lot of really good, loving relationships are destroyed because somebody wants a little variety or isn't getting a need met and feels they have to step out and it explodes the relationship. I'm conservative. I think that we should do what we can to preserve 
marriages and long-term relationships. And one way to do that is to encourage people to have more realistic attitudes about sexual exclusivity. Okay. I think it's interesting. There's never been a relationship I've been in where I haven't looked at another female I found attractive and thought about what would happen if dot, dot, dot. Right. And some of the women I've been with, they, they were looking to. I think Mr. Savage makes a, a point that some of our expectations are unrealistic. And the idea of monogamy is you are never going to want to be with anyone else. And I know I'm not married. It's never has ever occurred to me. But I know married couples where they go, yeah, you look, we talk about it, we laugh, but we have this commitment. And no one says it's going to be easy. And it's not, but it's a thing that you've committed to. And I really like that. And I do think he's right where we have, some people have these expectations. And the idea of losing your monogamy, like losing your virginity, not being able to get it back. I mean, that's why people can sit and talk. Like, okay, you slept with someone else, why? Adults are very complex creatures, so let's talk about that and see what's up. Let's see what's going on, because we do love each other or care enough about each other that we're not just gonna storm out and never see each other again over something 150 million percent human. However, I'm 54, and at this point, if I'm going to be with the woman, that's it. That's a commitment I'm going to make and stick to. But say I was dating a gal who said, okay, you were gone last week. I went back with my old boyfriend for the weekend. I'd say, okay, that's cool, and I'm out. And so that's basically me. I don't necessarily think monogamy is ridiculous. I think Mr. Savage can say whatever he wants. I don't think it's necessarily ridiculous, nor do I think falling out of the relationship and, you know, whoops, having that weekend, or not even it's a whoops, it's a, it's a human impulse. I don't even think that's ridiculous either. I think, right. I think it all happens, and it has to be down to the two people in that relationship to define what it is. I'm somebody that has been monogamously involved with someone for as long as I can remember, since I'm heterosexual too, and since I noticed girls, and since you know a girl deigned to notice me back, um, I've been in long-ish term monogamous relationships. And I think when I was 16 or you know 20, I was a lot less comfortable with the idea that people in monogamous relationships would be attracted to other people and, you know, and could talk about it and so on. Like, that just wasn't um, comfortable to me. Then I was involved with a woman who wanted to have an open relationship, which I did, and that worked out disastrously for me because I'm just not wired that way. Yeah, they quite often do, where you go into it thinking, okay, I can handle (laughs) this. And it's cool when you might do it. And yeah. then when the other one does it, you're like, how dare you? you. <laughs> right, <laughs> and exactly. That's not, that's not fair Exactly. Play. I mean, I didn't, really, I didn't really want to do that. Uh, I mean, I, you, we, it's a human impulse, as, as you say. 
Um, but I, you know, I would have been just fine being perfectly monogamous. But, you know, this was the agreement, and so I said, okay, well, you know, I guess it's all right. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, when when it, when it came her turn, it was disastrous. I mean, I was just totally. Utterly yeah. devastated, and I learned something about myself, which sure. is that hell no, I'm doing that again, kind of thing ever. And I don't think you know humans are necessarily any way. Like, right? It, it could be very well that you you might favor monogamy, and what does that do to um, something chemical, the way you were raised? Who knows? And really, I don't think it's a point worth pursuing. In that, right. if you feel it, that's all the truth, for, as far as I'm concerned, that you need. And so, having a, a being with another person who says, you know, I'm going to cut out on this for a week and go right. meet this waiter at the uh, at the restaurant, and you're like, I, whatever you're feeling at that moment, that would be the truth. When I was 20 something, I was living on the road almost all the time. Right. Might have a girlfriend that I'd see every once in a while, just from the, my job occupation. And you can call me whatever you want, but I was not faithful. <laughs> you, if I, if there, you want to use the word adulterer. Well, I did all that. I don't know if she did. She said she didn't. I'm not accustomed to her as a liar. We're still friends. Um, right. But I know I did. And she asked me, and I told her, and she was really, really hurt. And when I saw the amount of hurt that I caused, you know, I, I have no defense except I'm a young, hormonally raged, broke man on the road, and some of the only, <laughs> you're not getting paid, you're not sleeping in a nice place. Some of the only thing that wasn't an ashtray getting thrown at your head was some gal your own age saying, hey, you know, come on over. And you're right. young and you're just incredibly alive. And you go, well, okay. I think it is a really interesting topic. I have found that my whole thing on it has changed as I've gotten older. In that I, I want to be with why you. Why do you think that is? Like, why, why do you think it's changed? Because I have less time for BS, yours or you know, any, someone else's. But mainly, I'm really tired of my own. <laughs> and to be with someone like me and a woman... It would have to be a friendship first. And the friendship gotcha. would be the most important part. Because the biological part, the physical part, that's almost a given. Like with two adults, I mean, you're, you hang around long right. enough. You know, you're going <laughs> to find yourself like, whoops, my pants fell off. And so all that's going to happen. And years ago, I went out with a woman. We both kind of went, look, I find you attractive. And she said, I find you attractive. I said, good, great. Well, we got that. So let's not run into this because we could easily be naked in about two and a half hours. I mean, we could do just the normal adult, you know, thing that people do. I said, and that'd be nice, but how about we do something crazy and old fashioned? Like, let's get a rapport because we like each other. And, and I said, look, let's just, you know, share some jokes and get some miles. And we can get to that unless one of us gets plans on getting hit by lightning or a streetcar. <laughs> and we, we, we didn't hurry into it. In fact, I said, look, I'm a guy, you know me, we're always hungry. You call it, because I'm ready, you know, because I'm a guy and I'm an <laughs> idiot, but you call it, and when you're ready, I'm, I'm ready. And she said, cool. 
And we didn't even talk about it until she said, I'm coming over. I'm like, oh, great. Awesome. But I really like the idea that both me and this one woman, we both went, okay, we're, we'll get there and it'll be great. But it might be greater if we have something that's actually analog. Right. It's something that's not just based on you're hot, you're hot. And, and like I said before, I live in Los Angeles. There is so, you know, any city, I guess, there is so much of that in this city. Like if you sleep with that person, you get to do a casting call test or you get to, <laughs> right. and there's so much of that operative sex is commerce or to get right. you into some kind of fast lane. You don't always know if you're having a relationship that is meaningful or one that is just to someone's advantage. And I've been with one who just said, you know, bluntly, look, can you get me somewhere? Like, wow, uh, no. I mean, I'm, I'm throwing up in my mouth, but thank you for your candor. If people are being honest with each other about what it is that they want, if someone goes to someone else and says, can you get me somewhere if I sleep with you? And the other person is like, yes, I can. And then they do that, then all right. Adulthood is trippy. You know, it, it makes being young almost quaint and naive by comparison. And, yeah. and I think in a way, That's right. as you break into adulthood and kind of go around that particular track, lap after lap, if you're not careful, you can become somewhat damaged. You can become cynical. You can think, well, everyone's like that woman I just ran away from. They all want something. And I would hate to live like that, where I had to suspect everyone, couldn't trust anybody. And I'd rather get burned or ripped off or somehow disenfranchised because I trusted someone and was not a good judge of character, rather than suspecting everyone and always being in that mode. And, and, and people have said to me, they, they, they say, man, you are a really trusting person. Like you should, you need to button that up a little. I'm like, really? <laughs> I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to get my core hardened like that. I, I just don't yeah, want to see but, the end of things at the beginning of everything. Well, and again, I feel like if you're going to sell your soul, at, you know, like I, I'm not... I'm not that into it. I don't necessarily want to know you. But if that's what you're going to do, you should know that you're doing it and you should know what the consequences are. And then, and then sort of more power to you. Go do what you want to do. It's a shame, you know, from my perspective. But, right. But, because that person... You know, that's your choice. You ...will know. find someone else who will buy that for a dollar, as they say. And there, on the note of selling your soul for a dollar, we're going to have to leave it for now because this conversation with Henry Rollins, or uh, more like a monologue by Henry Rollins, punctuated by occasional interruptions from me, lasted for around 90 minutes. Two more awesome segments with Henry are coming soon on Think Again. And now, it is time for the random quote generator. I'm going to do the honors this time because uh, we'll save Henry's for a later episode. Okay, I'm pushing the button now. Okay, so the quote of the day is, A penny saved is a penny to squander. Ambrose Bierce. And now let's get back to the second half of this classic episode of Think Again with Henry Rollins. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you are listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. 
Since 2008, BigThink has been capturing bright ideas on video from some of the smartest people in the world. On Think Again, we revisit these ideas. It's a total surprise. My guest and I have no idea in advance which interviews we'll be talking about. This is part two of my conversation with the legendary Henry Rollins. In part one, we talked about monogamy and relationships. In part two, this conversation continues with two more surprise subjects from Big Things producers. What's up next, Jonathan? So this one is Paul Ekman on whether police should wear anger detectors. The police are there to protect us. They're there for our safety. Now, occasionally, there will be a bad apple, uh, but my work with police has suggested that that's really exceptional. The problem is they have a gun. So they can do a lot of harm quickly. But the problem is the pressure that police are under to make instant decisions for their safety and the safety of others. We all have bad days. Well, if a policeman is in that state, and they're not any different than the rest of us in that regard, it's a lot more dangerous. So it's a dangerous job that requires that you're in a calm state of mind when you go out to perform it. And we have the means to both assess that and further that, which is not deploying it. My biggest dream, and I haven't yet been able to convince any police department to try this, is to see whether we couldn't have a really fast, easy technological assessment. So before someone goes out on the beat, they sit down and their heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductance is monitored five or 10 seconds, says, yes, you're in your normal state. Go ahead and good luck. Or, boy, you're very aroused today. Let's see if we can do something to help you calm down a bit before you go out on the job. I believe it could reduce some of the problems we currently have because police are human like everyone else. All human beings have bad days. We need a way to be able to specify this policeman's having a bad day today. Let's see what we can do with a few minutes of a few exercises to bring him into a calmer state so he can go out and do his job in a way he won't regret. I couldn't agree more with what that man said. After all, they are people. They will have bad days. When you put a cop's uniform on, no one might know your name, but they all have an idea of you. And you are walking around in a huge target. So what if the, the guy who's off his meds or he's somehow extremely angry or whatever, he looks at you and you remind him of that cop who did him wrong all those years ago. And sadly, today, it's you. I think both the citizenry and law enforcement, everyone needs to get some information on how the other one is living, thinking, feeling. It's a delicate relationship because when a citizen gets shot, unless it's completely obvious, it goes into a gray area and it taps into every slight that that person or that demographic or that ethnicity or neighborhood or county has suffered. And so America is in this unenviable position of never, in my, just my opinion, we never did all the heavy lifting required to live up to the expectations that we put on ourselves of the Constitution, of our very awesome legal system, and the genius, and I'll use that word, the genius institution of democracy. 
And we often fall short. I think those are high marks to, to clear anyway. But you have a society now that is becoming more and more polarized since at least Reagan, or more recently, uh, George W. Bush too. And you have a black president. And I think some of this has to do with that. And I remember I was suckered into doing one of these awful MTV poetry events where I stood around with a bunch of the, the most pretentious people I've ever been in a building with in my To this day, I, I bite through an iron rod. I'm so mad. And I said at one point before I read something, I said, maybe policemen should be poets. Maybe they should be philosophers. Maybe they should be regarded as people with a real keen insight into the human state, which no doubt they be like them and every bartender becomes that whether they want to or not. And then this poet guy went on after that one. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should do police poems or whatever. I'm like, really, man? Too many witnesses. I, I'd kick your ass right now because I think I was right about that. And I don't know about you, but I've hung out with and met a lot of cops, a lot of detectives. And I've heard stories that will peel the paint off your car, like kids in frying pans, like just things no one should see. Right. And how do you expect that person yeah. to say, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt? They're traumatized for a living. I mean, if they're... Well, it's PTSD, but that's their job in that there's no recovery from them. Like a, a person who comes back from Iraq or Afghanistan after multiple rotations, they're done. In putting them in that position, we're asking them to think flexibly, creatively, responsively in the moment, and at the same time putting them through a kind of trauma that maybe makes it impossible for any human being to do that. Right. So here's an idea. What if you put term limits on a street officer, on a, a quote, beat cop, whatever, and whatever that term is, you know, 10 minutes, 10 years, well, you make it, you know, let the, let the doctors decide. And after that time, you have some options. You can go to detective school and become a guy in a suit and a tie who talks to the officers who secure the scene, or you can go and take further training and become a criminal psychologist. You can go up the food chain of academia and teach class. You can become an instructor weapons, strategy, whatever. But your time as a gumshoe or in the squad car, that's limited because the, let's all agree that the human psyche can take so much and then it goes pow. And it's, it's not good for that person's family. It's not good for them. They should not have a horrifying life that leads them to alcoholism, domestic abuse, shooting someone because they're in a bad mood. Let's all agree that cops have a job that most of us statistically do not want. Oh, it's, it's incredible what humans do to each other. And in America, you know, we are a place flooded with guns. And I think that idea of like, well, we need better background checks, that genie's never voluntarily going back into the bottle. And I was writing in my journal last night, thinking about this whole awfulness in, that happened South, in Carolina, South Carolina. Yeah. I said, you could take half of the guns off of the citizens of America, just have them go poof, it just have half of them go away. If a guy like Dylan uh, Roof wants to get a gun, it, even after doing all of that, that guy would not have that hard a problem getting a gun within 24 hours. There's that many guns in America. And so there's no law you're going to pass that's going to make everything better. You have to change how we view each other, 
how we view our differences, our commonalities, right. the law. Right. It has to be from the ground up. It's going to take generations and a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of patience and a lot of money. Everyone is either looking at they're living quarter by quarter, election by election. No one is looking at the long term really far down the road unless they're making a campaign speech and then they're all about the future. A cynical person would say that that system is pretty well entrenched. I, I don't know how you undo that, undo elections. Maybe when you get sick enough of people walking into churches and just blowing away innocent people. Maybe when we collectively are sick enough of that because it's happening often enough. Right. You know, as far as, you know, America's going to the dogs or whatever, you know, no slur upon dogs, but, you know, America's going down the drain. No, America's headed towards the drain. America, America's hit bottom. Oh, no, 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 no. We're nowhere near the bottom. We have so much money and so many resources. The bottom, oh, we're falling towards it like a person jumping out of a plane without a parachute. We're heading there. But when we hit, you'll know because it's going to be like science fiction. It's going to be like one of those movies you see on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be like Blade Runner on growth hormones. And when that happens, maybe some of us will be slapped awake and go, oh, this can't happen tomorrow. It can't happen again. And we have to change. But until then, I don't think we've seen the rated G version yet. We had a moment in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment, uh, abolishing slavery. And we, we could have followed up in 1868 with the 14th Amendment and said, okay, slavery's wrong. And I see you guys over there. Stop doing that Jim Crow thing you're about to enact because we really need to get this whole equality train on the tracks. But we never did it. We never did it. We nodded towards it for elections. We made steps towards it, civil rights movement, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the promised land that Martin Luther King spoke of and all these amazing people have been trying to head towards. You might be cool. I might be cool. But we are sick. We got problems. And so I've given up on we because I don't think we are going to get better. Um, we are Dylan Roof. And so I think it's going to take something that's so overwhelmingly huge. I don't think it's going to be the angry people occupying Wall Street. They just got pepper sprayed. They eventually went home because it got too cold. I don't think you're going to coordinate enough do-gooders to walk upon the White House without four Bradley fighting vehicles coming out and five people getting shot dead. And then someone saying, do we have an understanding? That's right. You're going home. But, but dig it. I know you know this. I'm just going to remind you. We are the ones with that power. You and me, we have that power. Unfortunately, that we is now a bought commodity. Bought, votes are bought. People are coerced. Districts are gerrymandered. More Democrats than Republicans vote, yet you have a bicameral house that does not reflect that. And you get what you vote for. I mean, here we are. That's right. And any woe or ill in America, I take full responsibility. Like, if there's any politician you don't like. That was us. That's kind of on you. I mean, you, you might have voted against that person and lost. Okay, fair enough. But he's our problem. And you can't say, that's not my problem. Pal, you live here. It is your problem. And I, I will not divorce myself from that. And I will not shun any responsibility. That makes sense. Okay, round three. What do you have for us, Jonathan? So now we have James Glick on the common character traits of geniuses. I'm tempted to say 
smart, creative people have no particularly different set of character traits than the rest of us, except for being smart and creative. And then, on the other hand, I wrote a biography of Richard Feynman and a biography of Isaac Newton. Now, there are two great scientific geniuses whose characters were, in some superficial ways, completely different. Isaac Newton was solitary, antisocial, fought with his friends as much as with his enemies. Richard Feynman was gregarious, funny, a great dancer, uh, loved women. Isaac Newton, I believe, never had sex. Richard Feynman, I believe, had plenty. So you can't generalize there. On the other hand, as I tried to understand their minds, the, the nature of their genius, I felt I was seeing things that they had in common. And they were things that had to do with aloneness. Newton was much more obviously alone than Feynman, but Feynman didn't particularly work well with others. He was known as a great teacher, but he wasn't a great teacher, I don't think, one-on-one. -on -one. I think he was a great lecturer. I think he was a great communicator. But when it came time to make the great discoveries of science, he was alone in his head. And this applies also, I think, to the geniuses that I write about in the information. Charles Babbage, Alan Turing, Ada Byron. They all had the ability to concentrate with a sort of intensity that is hard for mortals like me to grasp. A kind of passion for abstraction that doesn't lend itself to easy communication, I don't think. I mean, even the word genius is a bit problematic. It's like the word love. I love your dog. Okay. <laughs> you know, I love champagne. Oh, I love that guy. You ever met him? Well, no, but okay. Right. And so the word genius, because I come from the music world, and so no doubt you've heard the word genius being thrown at all kinds of musicians. Like Jimi Hendrix, I would say, was a genius. I guess we have to talk about what do we mean by that, but no one on earth ever played guitar the way that guy did. And of course, every human being is unique, so you could say nobody ever did anything the way anybody else ever did. But there's something transcendent and otherworldly about what he did. Well, yeah, especially for his age. To me, when I think of musical geniuses, there's a few people who I've assigned that word. You know, it's just an opinion, but it's mainly in the world of jazz. You know, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis. You know, they just changed where an entire genre of music was going. And then there's people like Prince, who are just so... I mean, forget his songwriting for a moment. When you just hear him play guitar, it's just not believable how good that guy is. And then, obviously, there's your literary geniuses. When you think of, like, Dostoevsky or Albert Camus or, you know, Twain, who could break it down to where everyone in town could understand, from the barber to the president. And so the word genius is one thing. The traits of people to whom the word genius gets assigned, I know people who I would consider incredibly smart, who are very well balanced and rational and you know, have families, and they just go to the lab or the studio or the office, and they just put the hat on and hit it. And then they come home to casserole at 5 p.m., but most of the people I know who you would say are genius, they're friendly enough, but you can see the difficulty. Like they landed their, their saucer and they get out and they can hang out with you for a while. <laughs> right. 
but you see them working hard to come up with sentences that will work. Uh, empathy. Hey, how are you? Do they not care? They're not being mean. They care. They don't want you to get hit by a bus. But whatever your answer is, they probably won't remember. And it's not because you didn't mention them or something in it for them. They're not concerned with anyone's health, really, not even their own. They're only concerned with the next thing, the next bit of work. They're not concerned with their next meal or when they're going to sleep. It is the work, the work, the work. These people are difficult to be around where after a few minutes, you're like, okay, I got it. That's all I need. Glad I met you. And we're so done. So maybe genius, as he says in the video, has something to do with obsession and being in a sense possessed by whatever your art is. I, I wanted to go back. You mentioned Dostoevsky. For me, Dostoevsky, kind of like Shakespeare, does this unbelievable job of inhabiting the minds of human beings that you feel like you've met and that vary so much one from the other and you just sit there kind of dizzy and saying, how can he shapeshift like that? There's a guy named Hubert Selby, the great writer. He wrote The Last Exit to Brooklyn, Requiem for a Dream, The Demon, The Room, Song of the Silent Snow. And I've never read anyone who was able to get into someone else to really upset you, to where you really wanted the book to be over. Because you couldn't put it down, but it really needed to stop. And I became very good friends with him, you know, from 1986 to the day I delivered the memorial at his funeral. We would discuss at length the people and their proclivities in those books. And he went, hey, it could have been me. Or in 1975, that was me. And I think where Dostoevsky maybe succeeds is he, he was a very moral person, but I think he allowed himself to go places where maybe there was a lack of morality or a different understanding of it or a momentary loss right. of it. One of the reasons there's a disconnect with a lot of people who are considered genius is they understand the world and they connect things in such a way where they have a real hard time connecting with Budweiser in a joint and watching The Simpsons. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with any of that. I'm just saying, I think they just have a hard time understanding why you would do that, why you're satisfied with that a second time. Probably it has something to do with them being more sensitive instruments and not sort of having the filters that enable other people to kind of numb themselves and go about their business and... And, and conduct themselves politely. You know, some people just blurt things out. You're like, okay, the whole table is yours now. Everyone's being very quiet. You just said, what? I said something wrong. I was like, uh, yeah, look at that person. You've mortified her. <laughs> so Larry David, or at least the character he plays in the Larry David show, is a genius. Like that. And, and I've been in those discussions with people where you have to walk them away before the angry man getting up, up from his bar stool is going to, like, thrash the guy. Like, I order you to get into the car now and <laughs> shut your mouth. There's an artist I knew, maybe the first full-on genius, this is not up for debate, genius I've ever met. And I, I knew him before everyone knew what a sensation this guy was. And now he's someone whose books are written about. But I saw him a couple of years ago. Like, what are you using for a belt? <laughs> I don't know. That's a necktie. I mean, he, he's a guy with millions of dollars. This amazing woman in his life who basically <laughs> says, okay, sit down, you're eating. And he, he's a gentle person, like wicked funny, just because he's so smart. 
but his, his artistic engine, I've never seen anything like it. It was like maybe sharing time with Van Gogh, you know, Van Gogh. So it's probably good for people like that if they're lucky enough to find someone who's willing to become their caretaker. Well, yeah, they almost have a patron. You know, there's that rich woman, Von Konigsberg or whatever okay. her name was. And she would just say, well, you know, Monk is sleeping on my couch for the next week and a half because he doesn't know where he lives and he's out of money and he needs a piano. <laughs> and I'm bathing him, feeding him and letting him use the piano because, you know, Monk was slipping into a mental condition he'd never emerged from. There's some rock stars I know who I think are complete geniuses. You can't give them a straight job. They mean well, but they will break the thing, <laughs> burn the place down. Humans are interesting because I, I think we're obviously quite dynamic. But I think at this point, we're, we're kind of like those rare breeds of dogs where they, they bred them a bit too much. I think we're kind of breeding ourselves into a cul-de-sac. We are monotypic, you know, homo sapiens sapiens. And we keep making little versions of ourselves Century after century, I think collectively, many examples of us are going a little bonkers. I think we're, we're there. We've really hit our human potential, and now we can just sit back and dig the mutants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm sitting. I, my knees just went all gooey. All right, Henry, thank you for taking so much time out of your 25 careers to do this today. It's no problem. <laughs> it's time to do the random quote generator. Would you do us the honor of pressing the button and reading the quote of the day to the audience? Unless it's something you profoundly disagree with, in which case, push it again. Okay. All right, let's see. It's a quote by a man named Nicholas Wirth. And the quote is, you may call me by my name, Worth, or by my value, Worth. <laughs> I think he's a very witty man, and that's not the first time he's used that or written it down. And if I had a name, W-I-R-T-H, as his is, I no doubt would have given some certain twist on that word a bit of thought. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. I hope I didn't overspeak. Speaking is what you do, isn't it? Unfortunately, yes. So that ends this nostalgic trip deep into the hippocampus of Think Again. If this show matters to you, if it's important in your life in any way, or if you just dig it, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with something completely different, a conversation about jellyfish, in fact. Please join me then. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.